Well, we have been in a teaching series called Shine, and, and God really spoke this to our hearts from Isaiah chapter 60, where it says, Arise and shine. It says, Let your light shine in dark places. And it says, If we would do that, then all the nations of the earth would be drawn to our light. And now more than ever, Kauai Bible Church, we need to shine. This is the season that the church was made for. This is what we were built for, is to shine in times like this. And I think it's so important. Listen, if the only time that we can shine as a church is when we're gathered together on Sunday, then we're missing something. Because we should be shining all week long. And especially in this time, listen, the coronavirus is only the first wave of this epidemic. The second wave of this epidemic is going to be the depression, the mental illness, the suicide, the drug addiction, the domestic violence. All of those things that happen because people are scared or struggling in poverty or can't find any hope because there's no jobs out there and the economy's not turning around. There's going to be a second wave of this epidemic. And that is exactly what the church was made for is to be the light that would shine in a dark season, that we could bring a message of hope and love to people that are hurting and scared. This is what it's all about. And so we've been doing this teaching series. This is actually part six. So if you missed any of the first five parts, they're on our website. You can go back and listen to them on our podcast. But we spent some time dealing with ourselves, right? That if we're going to shine, first we have to deal with the sin in our own lives. As followers of Christ, we have got to ruthlessly and honestly and humbly allow God to reveal anything in our life that's not pleasing to Him. And then repent of it. Put it on the altar and walk away and don't let it be a part of our lives anymore. We spend time talking about the secret place and how important it is to commune with the Holy Spirit in the secret place that we might have the, the perspective, that we might have the anointing, that we might have the power, that we might have the words of the Lord to actually go out and engage our culture and make a difference. And then we've spent the last two weeks talking about prophesying the church back to life and declaring the word of God and crying out passionately for the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would begin to flow and the church would come back to life. Now next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. And we're going to celebrate over 2,000 years ago that on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured out and the church was birthed. It really is the birthday celebration of the church, but it's a celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the power that that Spirit brings that we might go out and touch and change lives. So I don't know where we're going to be next Sunday, if we're going to be out here, if we're going to be inside, but next Sunday, we're going to be crying out passionately for the Holy Spirit and celebrating the Pentecost. So today, so we've dealt with ourselves, we've dealt with calling the church back to life, now it's time to go out. And so if you've got your notes with you, the notes are inside the bulletin that you should have gotten as you drove in today. If you're watching this service on video, the notes are attached to the video. If you're listening to this sermon on a podcast, the notes are attached to the podcast. But if you've got your notes, you can see that today we're going to be talking about a revival of evangelism. A revival of evangelism. 
And our big picture point at the top of your notes is this. That revival is not a party for believers. It's an outpouring for the unsaved. Revival is not a party for the believers. Listen, if that's what we were hoping for, if we were hoping that when we gathered every Sunday, there would just be more energy and more excitement so we could get the chicken skin and then we could get all excited and we could talk about the Holy Spirit. If that's what you were hoping for, God's not going to pour it out. Revival isn't a party for us. Revival is an outpouring for the lost, for the unsaved, for those that need the hope of Jesus, for those who haven't experienced the new birth. Right? If we go back and look at that first Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it says that they were gathered together. The first gathering of the followers of Christ was about 120 people. And they were packed into a room together. There was no social distancing during that prayer meeting. Come on. 120 people packed into a small room, crying out for the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What were they saying when they began to speak in these other languages? They were glorifying God and praising God and speaking of the mighty works of God in the language of every single nationality that was in Jerusalem that day. The Holy Spirit poured out not for them, but for everyone who was listening. And it says in the midst of this outpouring, Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel. He shares the message of Jesus who was crucified and who rose from the dead. And thousands of people are listening to the message and they cried out to Peter, what should we do? And he said to repent and be baptized. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And in verse 41, it says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to the church. Who? that's revival right there. And one day, the church went from 120 to 3,120. And they had to figure out how to have church going forward. Revival is an outpouring for the unsaved. It then goes on to say that they started figuring out how to have church together. And then in verse 47, it says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Revival is an outpouring for the unsaved. So we're not looking for a, a Christian party. We're looking for a revival. We're looking to see people who are destined for hell have their destinies changed forever, that they might be destined for heaven. We're looking for people that though they look alive as they're walking around, they're dead in their spirits, and we want to see Jesus bring them back to life again. We're looking for people who have lost all hope, and we want to give them hope. It's an outpouring for the unsaved. Now, we all know that we're supposed to preach the gospel, right? We've all heard the sermons, and the sermons either make us feel bad or they get us all fired up to preach the gospel, and then like two days later, we're like, yeah, I'm not really gonna, right? Mark 16, 15, and Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. 
So I don't want to just preach another message that either makes you feel bad or gets you all fired up, but two days from now, you know you're not going to follow through on it. I want to do something different. But first, we need to talk about why we're not evangelizing. Now, I've been the pastor of Kauai Bible Church for about two and a half years now. And in those two and a half years, we have not seen anybody who doesn't know Jesus surrender their life to Jesus, come into the church, find community, and get discipled. So that means that all of us fall into one of two groups. Now, I'm not saying this to shame any of us because, hey, guess what? I'm a part of the church too. So I'm just as responsible as anybody else. So I'm not saying this to shame us. I'm saying this to get us to think about this, that all of us fall into one of two categories. We all fall into one of two groups. We're either in the first group. What's the first group? That's the group of people that we're just not sharing our faith. We're just not telling anybody about Jesus. We haven't shared the gospel with anybody in a one-on-one setting. We haven't shared our testimony and told people about how Jesus has, has changed our lives. So that's, that's category number one. Category number two is we are sharing our faith, but nobody's responding. We're sharing our faith, but nobody's coming into the church and finding community and getting discipled. Right? So we all fit in one of those two. So let's talk about those two categories. The first one, we're not sharing our faith. You can see in your notes, why are we not sharing our faith? We got a few thoughts as we talked about this as a leadership team at the church. Why are we not sharing our faith? The first one is this. We've created the wrong norm. We've created the wrong norm. Listen, our bodies and our brains especially are so designed that they function best with routine. Right? Our brain processes billions of pieces of information every minute, which means it needs to function as effectively as possible to streamline all of that information. So that means that our brains fall into routines quickly because that's what allows us to function at our most effective. And then our bodies respond to those routines and we all work better in those routines. Right? Think about We've been doing online services for just nine weeks, right? I believe we did nine online services. Well, in that nine weeks, I fell into that routine. We were in the routine. Now, Saturday morning, we would film the services. Sunday morning, we would put the services up online. And then we would worship together as a family in the living room. And so this week, as the reality of gathering together for church was, was starting to happen, all of a sudden for me, it was like, well, this is kind of weird. Because it's only been nine weeks and I am totally in the routine of filming church on Saturday and being in my living room on Sunday. Why? Because we adjust so quickly. When I was working with troubled teenagers, I remember I was uh, at a, a, a teenage uh, runaway shelter and I was talking with one of the gals in the shelter who was one of the social service workers. And she was sharing with me that when they get a young person into their shelter, They do everything they can to get that young person reunited with their family as fast as possible. Why? Because she said that most families adjust to the new norm within two weeks. 
And so if they don't get that, that child back into the home within two weeks and start working on what was wrong in the first place, then the family will already have adjusted to a new norm and started to move forward. We adjust to norms quickly. So what's happened in our faith is we've created the wrong norm. Once you've been a follower of Jesus and you're able to go two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks without sharing your faith with anybody, then you've created a norm. And it doesn't seem weird and you don't feel bad about it. You just don't share your faith because that's the norm that you've created, right? We create the wrong norms. Another wrong norm that we've created is, well, people will just come to church and they'll hear the gospel at church. Well, that worked in the 80s and the 90s and maybe even at the beginning of the 2000s. But in 2020, that doesn't work anymore. Why? Because 20, 30, 40 years ago, everybody in America, we had this culture where it was just kind of expected that going to church was a good thing. And sooner or later, you would go to church. And, and, and so eventually, people would go to church and they would hear the gospel. Or you would put on a huge event and you'd put on a rally and a bunch of people would show up and they would hear the gospel. It doesn't work that way anymore. That norm that we've created of we're just waiting for people to come to church, it doesn't work anymore. Right? Last year, we did a Will Graham crusade here on the island. And it took a lot of work and a lot of resources. And it was an amazing Christian party. But very few unchurched people showed up. Right? Because that norm doesn't work. So why are we not sharing the gospel? Because we've created the wrong norm. So what does that mean? That means we need to shake up some norms in our life. And we need to make sharing our faith a part of what is normal. And even if it feels awkward at first, and it's uncomfortable at first, and it's difficult at first, if you make it the norm, within a couple of weeks, it'll feel like you've always been doing it. Another reason why we're not sharing our faith is because culture has silenced us. Right? Culture has shifted away from the church, which is fine. I don't necessarily think that cultural Christianity is a great thing. I think it's created a false hope for a lot of people. The culture has shifted away from the church. And now we live in a culture where it's offensive to have an opinion. We live in a culture where it's offensive to say that only one thing can be true. We live in a culture where if we speak out and we share a conviction, we're looked at as weird or we're looked at as radicals or we're looked at as out of touch. And because of this culture shift that has happened, we have been silenced because we've given into the idea that we'll sound weird or we'll sound like radicals or we'll sound like this or that. Listen, Christianity turned the world upside down during a time in, in world history that was way more pagan than we are now. Right? So just because the culture has shifted away from us doesn't mean that we don't have a message that can engage the culture and transform people's lives. It just means we have to be a little bit bolder to share it and a little bit more sure of what we believe. Another reason why we're not sharing our faith, because we don't comprehend just how awful hell is. If we were to take some time to meditate on just how awful hell is and on just how long forever is, 
and on just how painful it's going to be for people who are in hell forever. And if we were to take some time to meditate on that, I think it would stir us to share our faith a little bit more. Because we'd start seeing people in a whole different light if we started feeling the pain of what they might go through when they go to hell. Right? One way to think about it, I think it was actually Elder Barry that, that shared this with me on Tuesday. If I were to think about my daughter, Hannah, playing out in the street, and I saw a car coming down the street, 60 miles an hour, flying down the streets, I know exactly what's going to happen when that car impacts my daughter. And the thought of it is terrifying. So what would I do if I saw that car screaming down the road? I'd be running into the road, screaming at my daughter, move, move, move. And if she didn't move, I'd get out to the road and I'd grab her and I'd throw her out of the way, even if it meant I got hit by the car. Right? That's what we would do if we saw our kid in the streets. I believe if we meditated a little bit more on how awful hell is, we would have the same experience imagining every person we see dying and going to hell. And maybe, just maybe, it would open up our mouths. Maybe, just maybe, we would run into the fray and we would do something. Another reason why we don't share our faith is an absence of compassion. An absence of compassion. Maybe we've forgotten what a mess God saved us out of. And we've lost our humility and our brokenness. And maybe we've gotten a little prideful in our present condition. That we've forgotten how messed up we were. And how much God had to clean up. And how much junk we had to work through to get to where we are today. And so when we look at people who are where we used to be, we're not stirred with compassion. Right? Instead, we turn up our noses. We say, what's wrong with those people? Why are they out getting high instead of taking care of their kids? What's wrong with those people? Why don't they go get a job instead of begging for food? What's wrong with those people? Why don't they make better choices? And it's that absence of compassion that causes us to just write people off. Now, those people are a lost cause. No, they're not. Because we weren't a lost cause when Jesus found us in our brokenness. And finally, the last thing there in your notes is we don't share our faith because maybe we're a little too self-consumed. A little too self-consumed. Listen, leading somebody to the Lord takes a lot longer now than it used to. Like I said, it used to just be you would meet somebody, maybe they're your neighbor, maybe they're your coworker. you'd get to know them, you'd invite them to church, they'd say, yeah, I'd love to come to church with you. They'd come to church, they would experience the worship, they would hear the gospel, they'd give their lives to Jesus, and they would make the church a regular part of their lives. Right, and it was easy, right? It's like picking low-hanging fruit, it's right there. But leading people to the Lord isn't like that anymore. Now, you gotta invest a lot more time into them. Because they're not just going to come to church the first time you invite them. 
you got to invest in relationship and you got to build up trust and, and, and they've got to know who you are and that your life is genuine. And then in the midst of that relationship, you begin to talk about spiritual things and they may have a, a bunch of different questions and they don't even have a framework to even understand the concept of one true God. And so you got to get them to understand one true God before you can even get them to grasp the idea that, 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 that one true God would die for them and, and why they even need salvation. they got to understand what, you know what I mean? It takes a lot more time. And if we get a little bit too self-consumed, we're just about our time and our day and our routine, and we go to our church and we have our Christian friends and we do our things, we're not willing to invest the time that it takes now to evangelize somebody and lead them to the Lord. So that's category number one. Why are we not sharing our faith? How about category number two? Why are people not responding? I know I can look across this field right now. And I know some of you passionately share your faith. I've been there when you've done it. I've seen you do it. I've heard you share the truth. So why are they not responding? Why are they not coming into the church and finding community and getting discipled? Well, you can see there in your notes... There's two wars going on in that person's life. The first one is this. There's a war going on over them. And in parentheses, you write in spiritual. There is a spiritual war going on over their lives. Listen, I know some people don't like to think completely binary like this, but listen to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness... Other translations might say from the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of darkness, from the authority of darkness. For he, Jesus, rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So when somebody comes to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down and takes that person out of the authority of darkness and puts them under the authority of God. Right? What does that mean? That means that people are either in the kingdom of darkness or they're in the kingdom of God. It's binary. It's one or the other. And if somebody is in the kingdom of darkness, do you think the king that rules over that kingdom just wants those people to leave? No. The king of the kingdom of darkness is Satan himself. And he doesn't want any of those people to leave his kingdom. So he's not just going to let you waltz into his kingdom and take his subjects without a fight. There is a spiritual war that is going on over people's lives. There is demonic influence and there is the authority and the stronghold of Satan because those people are in his kingdom that are over their lives. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual war. And we can't just walk into Satan's kingdom and talk to somebody about Jesus and just think it's going to be a picnic. We better have done some warfare ahead of time before we tread it into enemy territory. Otherwise, those words that you're speaking, they're not even piercing through. Right? People aren't even hearing them. 
because there's such a, a darkness over their lives. There's such a stronghold over their lives. The words aren't even getting through. The second war that is happening is there's a war going on in them. So the first one, there's a war going on over them. The second one, there's a war going on in them. And in parentheses, you can write will. It's a war that's happening inside their will, right? Because to become a follower of Jesus, you have to surrender your will to Jesus. You have to declare that Jesus is going to be the leader of your life and you're going to surrender everything to him. But listen to Galatians 5.17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There is a war going on inside of their wills. And depending on how much junk they're dealing with in their lives, again, you can't even get to the point of their will where they can even make a decision to surrender until you've worked through some of the stuff that's going on. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He said, In whose case the God of this world, who is Satan, the king of the kingdom of darkness, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Right? So there's a war going on inside of their will. There's, a, there, there, there's part of it that is uh, the addiction that is in their will, and, and, and they don't have the strength to fight that addiction. Part of it is uh, just the, the, the selfish nature of our flesh that we just want to do what we want to do, and we don't want to listen to anybody else, and we don't want to do it anybody else's way. And it might be pain and trauma from abuse they've suffered throughout their life, and so because of that, their will won't let them trust anybody. You guys see what I'm saying? There's a lot going on that you even have to get through somebody's will to even get to the point where they can make a decision. There's a war going on inside their will. So what are we going to do? And you say, how is this message any different? Well, because I'm not just going to expect you to go out tomorrow and start sharing your faith, even though if you did, that would be awesome. Where does this thing start? How can we solve both of those categories? How can we solve the issue of those who won't break out of their own life and routine and who don't have the compassion or whose hearts aren't broken enough or who aren't scared enough of hell to go out and share the gospel? And what are we going to do for those of us that we are sharing the gospel but we're not seeing any results? Well, to get to that answer, I want to tell you the story that's in Acts chapter 4. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you. I'm just going to tell you the story. So like we said, in Acts chapter 2, the church was born. It started out with 3,000 new believers. And then it said day by day, God was adding more. And then in Acts chapter 3, two of the apostles of the church, Peter and John, are walking into the temple to worship. And there's a beggar there at the, at the steps of the temple begging for money because he's been crippled his entire life. And they look at this man and they say, you know what, we don't have any money to give you, but what we do have, we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And they touch the man and he's healed and he rises up completely healed after being crippled his whole life. And he starts running through the town praising God. 
and it gets everybody's attention. So the people gather together, and Peter starts preaching the gospel again. And a bunch more people give their lives to Jesus. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 4, it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. So these are all of the, the authorities of Israel. These are all of the leading people who have authority in Jerusalem and around the temple. And it says, They being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So now here we are just two chapters later, and the church has grown from 3,000 to 5,000. And now they've taken Peter and John, and they've thrown them into jail for preaching the name of Jesus. And then they get together and they have a meeting. They're like, what are we going to do with these guys? The miracles they're doing are real. People believe in them. There's going to be an uprising if we leave them in jail. And so they say, well, how about this? How about we let them out of jail and we just tell them not to preach Jesus anymore? And they all agreed, yeah, 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 that's a good idea. That's a good idea. But they didn't know Peter and John very well. So in verse 18, it says, When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them and said to them, Whatever is right in the sight of God, to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Right? So they're like, well, listen, we can either listen to you or we can listen to God. Who do you think we're going to pick? And then it says, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. So they threatened them with whatever they could, right? If you do this again, this is what's going to happen next time. But then they said, okay, you can go. And then it says in verse 23, when they had been released... They went to their own companions, which is the church. They went back to the church, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. Listen, I want you guys to get this. I'm going to start meddling a little bit here. I'm going to start preaching. They were mistreated by the people in power. They were mistreated and discriminated against by the governing authorities. And you know what they did? I know what they didn't do. They didn't stage a protest. They didn't pass around a petition. You know what they did? They had a prayer meeting. That's what they did. Peter and John get back and they said, hey, listen, they said if we keep preaching the gospel, this is what they're going to do to us. There were some pretty heavy threats. And what did they do in the face of persecution and discrimination and in face of the culture moving away from them? They didn't put on a parade. They had a prayer meeting. They had a prayer meeting. They lifted up their voices and they cried out in one accord to God. Where is this thing going to start? How are we going to change these two categories? How are we going to be different? It's going to start in prayer. What did they pray? Look down to verse 29. 
Listen to their prayer. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Now, let's stop right here. Hang on a sec. I'm willing to bet that for most of us, the continuation of our prayer right after that would sound something like this. Right? We would say something like, Lord, you heard their threats. Lord, you saw the mean things they did to us. Lord, you heard the awful things they said about us. Lord, you know they're going to torture us and do things to us. So the rest of our prayer would sound something like this. Oh, God, keep us safe. Oh, Lord, don't let anything happen to us. Right? That would be our prayer. But that's the wrong prayer. And if that's the prayer that we're praying, that's why we're not seeing an outpouring of evangelism. Because listen to what the first church prayed. They didn't pray, oh, Lord, keep us safe. They prayed, they said, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Their prayer wasn't, God, keep us safe. Their prayer was, God, give us the confidence to declare your name even louder. Lord, we're going to go out, and if they torture us, if they kill us, if they mock us, if they ruin our reputation, if they shame us, if they call us names, it doesn't matter. God, just cause us to speak your gospel with more confidence. That was their prayer. And then they went on, verse 30. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They said, Lord, don't just send us out there to preach the gospel. Go with us and do mighty and miraculous things so that when we preach the gospel, it would be accompanied by miracles and people would see those miracles and their hearts would be stirred to you. You notice there was nothing in their prayer about keeping them safe. There was nothing in their prayer about making them popular. There was nothing in their prayer about helping them to fit in with the culture. There was nothing in their prayer about any of that stuff. Their prayer was, help us to speak your word with more confidence. And when we speak it, God, will you show up and do something powerful? So God, when we're on enemy territory and there's a spiritual war going on, Lord, would you go before us? And would you break through that warfare so that when we speak the words, they can hear it? That's what's going to make the difference. So here's the one phrase. I've been praying since Tuesday, and I'm going to keep praying after today. Here's the one phrase that I believe could change everything. Bring their name to Jesus before you bring Jesus' name to them. Bring their name to Jesus before you bring Jesus' name to them. What does that mean? That means that in our secret place, we begin to pray more for the lost. In our secret place, we begin to lift up their names before Jesus. And in our secret place, we begin to do warfare on their behalf. And we ask God to go before us and to win the spiritual war that's happening over them and to break through the war that's happening within their will so that when we go and share the gospel, it will be accompanied with power and we'll actually break through to them and we'll see something amazing happen. So we go into our secret place and we start praying for them passionately 
day after day, over and over again. We do warfare. We lift up their name. We bring their name before Jesus. We pray for him to go before us. We pray for the Holy Spirit to anoint us. And then you say, okay, well then when do you know it's time to go tell Jesus' name to them? Well, first off, if you're spending that much time with the Holy Spirit in your secret place, he'll tell you when it's time. You'll know exactly when it's time. But let me just give you one thought. How will we know it's time? Is when in that place when you're praying for them and you start thinking about the reality of them going to hell and you want so badly for them to receive Jesus that you start weeping in your secret place. That your heart breaks and tears begin to come from your eyes. I wrote it like this in your notes. God wants to break our hearts so that we can reach their hearts. God wants to break our hearts so that we can reach their hearts. Because listen, when you're talking to somebody and sharing the gospel with them, they're not going to be looking at you thinking, wow, you must have spent a lot of time in prayer because I'm just feeling like something really... They're not going to be thinking that. But when you come out of a secret place where you have done spiritual warfare, you have brought their name before Jesus, the Holy Spirit has anointed you with power, and God has broken your heart so that you've been weeping for them, when you are with them and you're sharing the gospel with them, they're going to experience the passion and the authenticity from your heart. Listen, it doesn't matter how good of a public speaker you are. You could memorize a gospel script so that you could share the gospel with all of the perfect words. And if it's not genuine, it's not going to reach anybody's hearts. But I tell you what, when you come out of the secret place with that kind of passion and that kind of brokenness, even if you stumble over your words, even if you don't know exactly what you're saying, even if you're trying to tell your story and you say, I'm a lot, they're going to experience the authenticity and the passion that can only be birthed in the secret place. And there's going to be a response to the authenticity of your hearts. God wants to break our hearts so that we can reach their hearts. Let me have the worship team set back up again. Listen to some of these scriptures. Now, we've been reading Jeremiah for the last two months in our daily rooted Bible reading. Jeremiah 8, 21. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Right? When Jeremiah thought of the people of Israel facing the judgment of God, his heart was broken. He was dismayed. In verse th chapter 13 and verse 17, Jeremiah said this, But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride, and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Right? Jeremiah says, If you're not going to listen, I'm going to go back to the secret place and I'm going to weep for you some more. Until maybe, just maybe, somebody will listen. Psalm 126 and verse 5 says, Those who sow in tears will reap in joy. 
He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Sowing the seed is a metaphor for sharing the gospel. So if you mix sharing the gospel with the weeping of the secret place, the Bible says you'll come home with a bag full of fruits. But it begins with weeping in the secret place. How about Psalm 119 and 136? My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Have you ever cried for somebody so passionately that you could say, my eyes are shedding like streams of water because I'm thinking of one person who doesn't follow Jesus? How about Jesus, Luke 19, 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, weeping because he wants so badly for the people of Jerusalem to receive the truth. How about Paul, 2 Corinthians 2, 4? For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. Paul said, I was in anguish. When I was in the secret place praying for you, I experienced much affliction, and there were many tears that were shed. And I'm not telling you that because I want you to feel bad. He says, I'm telling you that because I want you to understand how deeply I love you. You want people to experience your love when you're sharing the gospel with them? Then weep for them in the secret place. And they'll receive it. And you don't have to tell them you were weeping in the secret place. They'll just know because it'll flow from you with such authenticity. So you say, what's different? Well, yes, I want an evangelism. I want a revival of evangelism. I want to see people coming to know the Lord. I want to see Kauai Bible Church not just filled with our faithful members who have been a part of the church for years and decades. I want to see our church filled with new people who last week were going to hell, but this week they're going to heaven. I want to see our church filled with families that last week they were giving up and they were thinking about suicide or they were talking about divorce. And this week they found Jesus and they're getting things back together. That's what I want to see in our church is to see our church filled with new faces of people that have found new hope and new life. And so what are we going to do? Well, I'm not going to tell you to just go out and share your faith. Because if you're not doing it now, there's no reason why you would start tomorrow. What I am going to tell you is let's go into the secret place. And let's begin to write down the name of every loved one, of every friend who doesn't know Jesus. And let's start lifting their name to Jesus in the secret place in that quiet place of prayer. And let's start doing it consistently, daily, until God begins to break our heart and we're flooded with a renewed sense of compassion and we're flooded with a, a renewed sense of, of fear and disgust and horror at what hell is really like. 
until God breaks us to the point where we're weeping in the secret place. And then when we get to that point, I won't have to tell you to go share the gospel. You'll just do it because you couldn't possibly keep quiet. So where is this revival of evangelism going to start? It's not going to start in a class where I teach you how to share the gospel. It's not going to start in memorizing a script. It's going to start in the secret place. It's going to start when the tears start to fall and when our eyes begin to shed streams of water. Then the revival of evangelism is going to begin. And then the church is going to shine. In the midst of this epidemic season, the first epidemic and the second epidemic, the church is going to begin to shine. Come on, and if you've got to stay six feet away from somebody, that means you just got to shine a little brighter so they can see you from six feet away. Can we stand together right now? We've got to keep some social distancing, but can we just join hands with those family units that you're sitting with? And can we start right now? Can we start right now praying for the lost? Come on, I just want to encourage you. I'm not going to pray into the microphone because I don't want you to just listen to me pray. I want you to begin to pray. And so right there in your family units, whoever you're standing with, whatever names come to your heart, who are your friends and loved ones that don't know Jesus? Who are the people that you're closest to right now that you could share the gospel with? And right now, we're going to take some time. I'm not going to rush it. We're going to take some time. We're going, to, we're going to sit in this thing for just a minute. Begin to lift up their names before Jesus. Begin to pray for them. Begin the process now of God flooding you with a new compassion, of God breaking your heart, of tears beginning to flow. Come on, right now in your groups, begin to pray.